Welcome to the Call the Farms podcast. Started getting patients to to ask their family members what they ate and what their grandparents ate. And uh, we started to kind of move their, their diets back towards the natural diet. That, I think, was the click for me with farming. It was, was like, oh, wait a second. I don't need to be just handing them prescriptions for medications. I need to actually start healing them with food and getting them back and connected. In this episode, we are on location in Hawaii. Aloha. Aloha. Yes, we are on the big island where we have an exclusive opportunity to interview Brittany and Bodie, the owners of Sugar Hill Farmstead. They are regenerative farmers on a mission to nourish and heal their local community with whole foods that they grow and raise on their land. Bodie is a sixth generation farmer and his family hails from the big island. Growing up, he answered the call to arms and enlisted in the Navy and served as a medic before rising through the ranks and serving as a commissioned Marine Officer Physician Assistant. After completing his tour of duty, Bodhi made it his mission to continue healing people through modern medicine as a medical director in charge of multiple health clinics here in Hawaii. Brittany grew up on the mainland and enjoyed gardening with her family. She introduced Bodhi to read The Omnivore's Dilemma by Michael Pollan, which helped open Bodhi's eyes to the fact that malnutrition and what people are eating has a direct cause to the symptoms his patients suffered. Together, Bodhi and Brittany answered the call to farms and started Sugar Hill Farmstead, where they are regenerative farmers in Hawaii who are deeply committed to respecting and caring for the aina. In Hawaiian, Aina means land or earth. It is a significant term that reflects the deep connection and reverence that the Hawaiian culture has for the land and its resources. They are embodying the traditional Hawaiian values of stewardship and sustainability, focusing on soil health, biodiversity, water conservation, beyond organic methods, and community engagement. And guess what? We are going to talk about all of that today. Join us in this episode as we learn about their amazing journey. And like us, their story shares very many similarities on how we did it out of necessity and a calling rather than something we've always dreamt of doing. Bodhi and Brittany's story is one about healing others through wholesome foods. And accomplishing this task is no small feat. But they are a military family with grit, determination, and a whole lot of heart. We are honored to share their story with you today. Enjoy the interview. Um, Bodhi and Brittany, what got you into farming? Well, I grew up in the Garden State in New Jersey, and you know, a lot of people think of New Jersey as you know, gross and the airport and factories, but I grew up with a garden every summer. My mom was instrumental in getting me and my sister to get our hands dirty, get in the soil, she would say. Go pick a tomato. We're going to have bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwiches. Or go get onions for the baked potatoes. So having that kind of background, you know, you, you go in and out of agriculture. You just have a backyard garden. But I, I always draw from that experience. Um, so when we had the opportunity to f- start farming, we kind of jumped at it. Um, both feet in the deep end, really. It was, we, we bit off a lot, but... 
we've learned some mistake from some mistakes, but it's it's gone really really well. And when did you start? Twenty twenty sixteen, I think was That's, the start. Yeah. What was the catalyst? That... Chickens. The chickens. Chickens. The gateway are, animals. It is a gateway. <laughs> It was, oh, I'll just have a few chickens. And then we got some rabbits. And then it was like, oh, I really want pigs. So we had a friend who Hold had... on, we, then we got ducks. Oh, then we got ducks, yeah. <laughs> yeah and then we got ducks. ducks. And we lived... Then we got bees. Yeah, and we lived in town. In town. Wow. How much land did you have? 15,000 square feet. Okay, a little over a quarter acre like us in the Bay Area. It was, uh, we called it our urban farm. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah, then we wanted pigs, and you can't have pigs in town. Mm-hmm. Um, people were a little upset over our bees when they'd swarm, you know, and you're like, oh no. <laughs> um, but we had friends, and they had five acres, and they weren't using their front acre. So, in trade for Bodie helping put up a fence, we got to use that one acre, and so we got pigs. We started with Cooney Cooney pigs, mm-hmm. and yeah. we got some sheep. And then we moved the ducks out there. And then Bodie says, I want a cow. Uh-oh. <laughs> and we couldn't put a cow no. on their no land. <laughs> so we started looking for proper property. And we went and looked at a bunch of places. Um, but when we came to where we are now, the 10 acres, we kind of looked at each other and knew this was, this was it. It had everything we, we asked for. We wanted an ocean view. We wanted at least 10 acres, which we're on 10 acres now. We wanted food on the land already so we could feed the animals mm-hmm. and ourselves. And we have bananas, we have mango, avocado, coconuts, and uh, yeah, it snowballed from there. And this was raw land? Completely raw land, yeah. Did someone plant those uh, mangoes, coconuts, and bananas? Yeah, a before? long time ago. Actually, we know somebody whose family planted them. Uh, just when they were leasing the land years ago. But then when we bought it, it was all planted in sweet potato. So from the front to the back was just all all sweet potato for for a few months right when we bought it, and then they harvested it, and we took over. I know you were telling me before about the sweet potato farms here and how they used Roundup, and so I think what was interesting is I asked you, well, how did you remediate the soil so that you can produce your, you know, organic fruits and vegetables safely. Yeah, um, to prep the acreage for planting sweet potato, they round up everything. And so you'll have acres upon acres of land just covered in roundup. And then once all the the grass dies, then they start tilling. Um, It's a high till type of farming, the sweet potato, uh, sweet potato and ginger. They're very high till. Then they fill in with fertilizer and a bunch of other additives into the soil because the soil is just barren. Mm -hmm. If you pick it up, it just falls through your your fingers. Yeah, it's dead dirt. dirt. No bugs. Everything is dead. And uh, and then they'll they'll plant the the greens of the sweet potato right into the ground from another property that they're. So when they harvest the old sweet potato, they take those greens and just put them right in the in the ground, and they they start to grow from there. So there's never a planting phase. They're not putting seeds in the ground. Mm. I see. Okay, so they're using the slips from the greens of another. Okay, got it. Yeah, and so when 
we took over the property. We put our cows and our pigs and our sheep and then our chickens, and we did a leader follow. Um, I also used some KNF practices. We did LAB, well, we still do the fish amino, mm-hmm. and we did some IMO in the in the fields. But really, just having the ruminants go through, and um, they ate whatever sprouted up. When we look at pictures, I still can't believe that our cows ate anything in they complain if there's only four leaves left on one of the clumps of grass they have what 18 foot guinea grass to eat and they get you know, oh no there's only 15 feet left you know so they're they're very spoiled cows at this point can you talk about the leader follow oh yeah so leader follow you start with your um, cows then you go sheep then pigs and then chickens and that's the progression that we uh that we did we don't rotate the pigs in with the rest of them now um if your sheep have babies in the field the pigs will go in mm-hmm. and they will we did not know that um until it happened mm-hmm. and that's uh that was one of those big mistakes that you learn from i've noticed that how humid it is here there aren't any flies yeah, it, um, you wouldn't know that we have as many pigs as we do on our property. That's right. Yeah, yeah. we didn't. We couldn't tell. <laughs> no, the rotation um, really helps, and our soil health, for sure. And people are shocked too that that we can have pigs in a field. Like the USDA doesn't even recognize that as a possibility. Uh, Department of Health, none of them even believe that that's a possible category to have pigs in a field like a cow. They, they don't think it, it exists. They because think that they're all... only on cement in a, with a roofed structure, mm-hmm. not moving. It's, it's very interesting. It's very interesting. And so how do you, uh, when you rotate them, I did see some gates, but do you have fencing in between the paddocks already there? So you just kind of open the door and they just walk in? For the cattle, yes. Okay. Uh, for the pigs, we use the Premier One. Uh, netting fence so we can just set them up wherever the the guinea grass is tall Um, and then once they fully landscape that area we just move them to the next spot set up a new new set of premier fencing and uh, and let them in i want to learn a little bit more about how you developed or how you built this farmstead because it was um, raw land 10 acres it did have come with fruit trees and that's great but you have a a beautiful home you have a lot of structures um, that help support your CSA yeah I would say uh, grants is the main way you you do that I mean to get the infrastructure uh, to come in with it with hundreds of thousands of dollars up front to, to set everything up is is impossible Brittany has been outstanding at writing grants uh, all different types of, of grants uh, and that that's really helped us uh, grow a lot faster than we could have if we were to, to have tried to fund this ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've done, let's see, value-added producer grant, um, fruit guide community fund grant, um, a private grant. I won a business plan competition. Farmer Veteran Coalition grant, which was the Gears to, Gears to Give program. And that, that was Bodie's story. I just wrote it down. You know, it's, his live, <laughs> it's his life, but... I wrote it, and I think I'm at a 90% success rate for the grants wow. that I write. 
So we, we do a lot of funding through that. Russia did REAP oh, yeah. uh, for solar, to help with the solar. And then there was a COVID one for delivery vehicle. Mm, that's true. Wow. Yeah, I love that you're sharing this because one of the largest barrier to entry to owning your own homestead is finances. And these grants, they're not small dollar amounts. Why don't you share how much you got and you know how, how you applied the money to your homestead? The value-added producer grant was anything under 50000 So I believe it was... I, I got $49,999.98. Um, you're not supposed to do the 98 cents. They don't like the, the cents part, but it was very important for me to, you know, 999.99. And for that, that is value-added producer. So um, when you do meat, you, in the cutting portion of it, is value-added. So you can sell animals off the, on the hoof to someone to then process or... Um, for the value-added producer grant, it's us processing it and distributing it for each month uh, to clients. And everything that went into that, it's a cash match, um, but you can also match with your time. So Bodhi's time doing the processing uh, went into that as a, a, a value match. So it's not completely free money. You do have to have some money um, sometimes it's 50%, sometimes it's 100% mm-hmm. cash match, but a lot of times you can find where it's your time can be part of that value. And how did you apply that grant money? Um, so the cookbook? Cookbook, oh. recipe cards, um, having a, someone come help, mm-hmm. so a part-time employee, um, cooler bags. So mm-hmm. we do reusable uh, cooler bags so that the meat stays frozen. Um, delivery. So we pay a local courier service to deliver for us. And so we offset some of that cost for our customers with the, with the grant. I also like when you gave us a tour of your property that one of the grants paid for your um, cooling container for your meats and how it's powered through solar and wind, which is amazing. If you wanted to talk a little bit about that and also your home, you're completely off grid. And, and it's not a little hut either. And we've, 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 we've ventured, we've gone to different places like Albuquerque. We've seen Adobe places that are off off grid, grid, but it definitely looks off grid. Your place looks like a modern home, but it is completely off grid. Would you mind telling us a little bit about that? that process it was really important that we we didn't want to work live in an earth ship i mean some people do and it's lovely it's just not who we are we wanted to live a very contemporary lifestyle um but be off grid we couldn't be on grid if we if we tried uh so we have two separate systems we have a pv system for our house and a pv system for our shipping container where we do all of our processing 2019 I entered a business plan competition, a local business plan competition called High Plan, and I didn't really expect to advance as much as as I did because it is meat, and it's very controversial to talk about butchering and and meat eating in general. It makes people uncomfortable, Uh, so I was very surprised when I won. Uh, I went through all the different, we went through three different rounds presenting to different, um, I think it was a month. 
each month it was you had to present again you had to prep to present again and I won $25,000 to start our CSA so I had enough money to pour a pad for our shipping container buy the shipping container um I think I bought the Coolbot system off of that. It was, it was it was wild. I still can't believe it. I watched the video of me accepting. I'm like crying. It was, <laughs> like, like, like it's like Miss Universe or something. I'm like, oh my gosh, you all are it amazing. Is it is equivalent in the, in the farming world. <laughs> yeah. But we never really wanted to do this. We kind of felt like we were forced. Um, yeah. Because our food system here on this island, is hmm. it's it's hard. Um, it's hard to kind of forge ahead and the slaughterhouse, the local slaughterhouse that everybody uses, uh, closed its doors, uh, to small producers and to, uh, anything other than cattle. Wow. Um, and we had pigs that were coming to market. We had stores that were going to stock our, our pork and they closed. So we were, Oh no we've got to figure out how to do this. So we found the custom exempt rule and started butchering ourselves. I went to Vashon Island and learned from the farmstead meat smith how to butcher and make sausage and do all the, the farmsteady things. Mm-hmm. And it's not stopped. It's not slowed down. We've, <laughs> we've only grown since then. This is amazing because I queued in on this off of your Instagram that you do the butchering. That's yeah. amazing. <laughs> yeah. But when I was pregnant, we had to do two pigs a month for the last, gosh, four months of, our, of my pregnancy because we had so many pigs. And I, I knew uh, with like a little baby, there's no way we could do it. So mm-hmm. we had to do two pigs a month um, with my big old belly. And, and I have a question on um, the butchering facility that you have here. Is it USDA approved? And if so, why? If not, why not? Yeah, no, we, we do not butcher with the USDA. Um, I had been told that even if we wanted to do USDA, we don't have enough inspectors. There has since been another USDA slaughter facility that opens, and they do. If you build it, they have to staff it. But we are. The Hawaii region is made up of islands, whereas you have someone like, or somewhere like Utah, it's a, it's a state. You can drive from one side to the other. It might take you a while, but you can still do it. In Hawaii, you have to fly. So they staff their USDA inspectors based on a state and, and how the region. So they can't, an, an inspector can't drive from Oahu to the big island, mm-hmm. they'd have to fly. Right. So it, it, it causes a lot of logistical problems for USTA um, inspection. But also the requirements too with oh. the USDA, right? Oh yeah, um, you know, we don't, we don't spray our chickens in bleach. USDA does not necessarily mean that it's any safer. Hmm. So we do custom exempt, which means we provide slaughter services for the owners of the animal. So our CSA members are owners of the animals on our property. We are just stewards, and we just provide as a service to them. We talked about shipping. Do you ship any of your products either you know, to the mainland or to other islands here in Hawaii? We only distribute on the island for our meats and our vegetables. Completely what? local. <laughs> right, right. And it's, it's because you want to... Support local. What was what were some of the things that you saw when you were in 
was it Kona? Oh, when we lived in Oahu, um, we lived in Oahu for almost two years. And when you'd go to the Whole Foods, you would find more produce, more items that were grown on Hawaii Island, the big island, that you couldn't get when we lived there. So why are we going to ship any of this stuff off the island? We need to feed the people on this island first. The, mm-hmm. the barges, the barges stop. A plane, planes can stop. We need to be able to feed the people of this island from the food from this island. I think that's just so beautiful and it speaks to your values. And so I wanted to make sure that everyone also could hear that. But going back to when you were writing grants, you said that you were really just sharing Bodhi's story. I'm kind of curious, what was it about Bodhi's story? Did you grow up wanting to be a farmer? Yeah, no, definitely not. I, I, I did grow up on an organic farm uh, that was doing a CSA back in the 80s in Northern California. Um, so I think that was uh, pretty early in the CSA world, uh, but I had no interest in, in that. I, I only wanted to join the military. That was my, my calling. Everything I, I wanted to do involved the military. So yeah, for me, that this all came about I think from from working in the southernmost health clinic uh, in the United States called Kau Bay Clinic, and uh, I was started seeing some some just terrible health conditions that I wouldn't expect to see in the United States. Uh, things like uh, late stage diabetes causing gangrene, where people's toes were falling off, and just uncontrolled high blood pressure, cancer eating away people's faces. I mean, just things that you just would not believe. And what I saw or what I drew the connection uh, after Brittany shared the omnivore's dilemma uh, with me, uh, I would, it was a long commute, an hour and a half every day. Uh, and she shared that, that book with me. And I, I immediately connected the, the food piece um, and, and, started looking at what these patients were eating um, and, and uh, was just shocked, honestly, that they were not eating food. Uh, and, and so I started getting patients to, to ask their family members what they ate and what their grandparents ate. And uh, we started to kind of move their, their diets back towards the natural diet. And, and that's, I think, was the click for me with farming. Was, it was like, oh, wait a second. I don't need to be just handing them prescriptions for medications. I need to actually start healing them with food and getting them back and connected with food sources. And that is a desert down there. I mean, there is no farmer's markets there. Currently, there's no supermarket even down there anymore. Um, So these people are traveling long distances, but they're traveling to Costco and they're picking up a bunch of pre-made packaged foods, things that are very easy because they've forgotten about the food preparation piece, the enjoying food, the sitting down with family. And, and uh, so that, that for me was, was it. It was like, okay, we, we've got to get involved in this somehow. And so we started doing a lot of, of farming on our little property in town. And that, that's uh, what started with the chickens to the ducks. <laughs> to the, rabbits and to the cows yeah <laughs> so it sounds like you chose the call to farm when you realize that food is medicine absolutely yeah and that's so great to hear from you because you are in medicine 
And it sounds like after you made that realization and started making changes to their lifestyle, their diet, did you start to see their health improve over time? Yeah, definitely. I saw them being able to to wean them off medications that they had been put on for things like diabetes, high blood pressure, um, and, and starting to, to see them lose weight. Um, with doing, no, they're not exercising. They weren't doing anything, anything different except the the food piece, and um, so that that was great. And of course, getting them to get outside and get a little bit of sun, you'd you'd be blown away at how many people here are vitamin D deficient because they don't go outside. Even in Hawaii, oh, yeah. I know in the mainland, we do see a lot of that vitamin D deficiency. But I would imagine it's so beautiful here that you'd see less of that. Nope. I, I saw more here than, than I saw in my other career. And that's probably from lifestyle then. I think just not going outside. I mean, just they've been, many people have been taught to, to fear the sun and stay away from the sun. You're going to get sunburn. You're going to get sun skin cancer. And mm-hmm. uh, I think that that has a lot to do with it. And putting on sunscreen too, right? Sure. Yeah. Blocking a lot of your ability to absorb vitamin mm-hmm. D. And then also decreasing your cholesterol in your diet, not allowing you to convert Mm. uh, the the sun Mm -hmm. to vitamin D. Yeah, one of the things that when I started looking into realizing food is medicine was when my mom started to have some heart problems. And she was on high blood pressure medication um, and she has atrial fibrillation. But as we started changing her diet, when my oldest was born 12 years ago, I started questioning, you know, our food. And because my parents live with us, we take care of them too. We started changing the diet and, you know, slowly I was weaning her off like the stronger medication to start taking away some of the pills that she was prescribed. That's wonderful. <laughs> so how did you choose the, the area that you're in? Uh, so my, I am the sixth generation of my family uh, living uh, in Hawaii fifth generation on this island but now with our daughter (laughs) i guess we're we've got seven generations (laughs) um my great great grandfather uh, ran the hakalau plantation which is a sugar plantation um about two miles from here so this is uh i think that we've we felt a a calling to get as close as we could to to uh, where he was born and and grew up um I think that was the point of this spot specifically, but but Hawaii, the Big Island in general, just for the family ties. Um, so you said you grew up on a farm in Northern California as well, and you also served in the military. Did some of those skill sets from the military translate to being a farmer? <laughs> yeah, I mean, definitely. Uh, you, there's a, a, a mission-driven kind of purpose uh, to, to farming, which to me is identical to, to the military. Um, you know, you're, you're showing up uh, early in the morning. Um, you're showing up no matter what, rain or shine. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're, you're sick or not, you're, you're still showing up and, and uh, you're accomplishing a mission, whatever that is, farm chores for the day. Uh, weed eating, whatever whatever needs to be done, um, and uh, you don't stop and until until you've gotten that whatever that is that needed to get accomplished. So yeah, to me it's the same thing. It's just re- redeploying in a different uh, a different mission. Did you find any healing at all by farming? 
any benefits from there besides the health benefits and that you mentioned? As, as kind of a backstory to that question, because Tim's got some PTSD from his time in the military. My dad was a Vietnam vet. He's got some PTSD as well. But when we started moving out to the farm, and specifically when we brought in not the chickens, but the ducks and the sheep and the goats, I started to see a shift in Tim and my dad as well as they were doing chores. It wasn't a chore. It was really, he, he wanted to be out there with the ducks. They started to imprint on him, and they became his little soldiers almost. when they, They're so cute. But I which, think there was some which healing. made it hard to process them. Oh, but, I bet. Uh, <laughs> but um, I would have never noticed it until she saw it. And so for me, I receive healing. I know through taking care of the livestock. And I was wondering, for your part, if you, from your experiences, have you received any type of healing by farming? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it. it, it uh, I think that you can check out of, of some of your thoughts and, and ruminations by, by going out there and doing your farm chores, taking care of the animals, mm-hmm. uh, similar to if you were taking care of your troops or, um, you yeah. know, leading, leading your, your team. Um, so yes, definitely. I mean, it, it's, uh, it can be mind numbing work sometimes, but, but also it's, it's wonderful. And, uh, you know, it just gives you something else to, to focus on and, um, also, especially when you see customers, you know, they're showing up to pick up their meat or they're telling you about the, the taste of the, uh, 14 day aged <laughs> grass fed beef, you know, and it's, it's like, uh, it, it definitely is, uh, feels really good. If it, it feels like you're accomplishing the, um, I hate to keep using the word mission, but it feels like you're accomplishing what, you know, what you set out to do. And yeah, I totally agree with you. It's just really fulfilling to be able to see that you're having a positive impact on the on the local community i think for me though it's more about teaching so i like i get more fulfillment in teaching because there are rough days on the farm and sometimes it's it's very easy to feel isolated and alone um, especially when you have really rough days and i want to have a group kind of like like a band of brothers where we can talk to one another because we need to be able to refocus as to the purpose, why we're doing what we're doing. And in our own community, I get a sense of purpose because why we're doing it, we're doing it for the legacy for our children. And we want to be able to teach them these life skills and grit and being able to, you mentioned waking up rain or shine and going out there because you actually have an animal depending on you. They won't eat unless you come out. And for me, that was some of the military skills that I kind of drew upon, um, just having that great determination and teaching that to our children, because that's something that I feel like it's lack, lacking in today's generation of teaching, motivating and inspiring those to just kind of be able to not be selfish, but to do, to do better for others. Yeah, it's it's definitely from like my time at West Point, but also in the military, like learning servant leadership and not giving orders to someone that you wouldn't be willing to do yourself. And mm-hmm. I'm hearing this, and this is something that I I'm I'm in totally aligned with you in terms of being mission driven. So I like that description that you had. We come from a military background, Bodie. You know that was our our calling back then, and now our calling is farming. How can we encourage? fellow brothers and sisters in arms to to do what we do 
That's a great question. I, I think the, the farmer veteran coalition is, is a great kind of stepping off point. Um, you know, here's this organization that, that's got their, their feet in pretty much every state, um, and in supporting, I think they even say redeploying, uh, veterans, uh, to, to farming careers, uh, you know, so they'll, they'll support you through that process. They'll connect you with, uh, with other veterans who, who maybe can teach you, uh, if you're interested in, in learning, um, and they have grants, uh, that, that you can tell your story, your military story or your farming story and, and, uh, be able to, to get started on, on the farming career. So I, I think that's a great way and then just finding a farm. So um, we've got an intern right now who's, whose husband's uh, active duty. Hmm. Um, he's an electrician's mate in the Navy over in Oahu uh, on a submarine. And uh, she just found us, started buying products from us, and then went, hey, can I come learn what you're doing? I want to do this. Uh, I want to do exactly what you are all doing. And so, yes, now she comes three days a week. She just shows up here and and does amazing work and learns everything you could imagine that we do. Um, and and uh, I, I think that for veterans to do something like that, find a farm near where you are, volunteer to, to do some work. I, mean, I, I think that uh, you'll, you'll get a great, uh, great idea of, of how hard, but how, uh, how wonderful farming can be um, and, and even helping you in your healing. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's you're you're not having to to be employed by them. You're just going to help out, and you probably will love it. And uh, they they can help set you up with uh, you know all of the the basic learnings, and then uh, you you fill in the blanks with books and YouTube and yeah, I love that you gave those resources and that it's like in the military, the left seat, right seat, right, and that they just have to have a hunger, a willingness to learn. And that it's beautiful that you both are willing to mentor others who are willing to do the work and put in the time. And uh, there's, it's, it's beautiful. They're going to have like a lasting, you're building a lasting legacy within your community. I mention this because you're not, you're teaching them, but you're also not abandoning them. Like you're teaching them this and you're around too to provide support. Can, can you talk a little bit about the community here? And do you have a community where there are others that think just like you? or others that can come together and do exactly like what you're doing right now so that you're not, are you isolated? Like, yeah. are you the only farm? Like that's, I don't know. That's what I'm asking. That's a good question too. I, uh, we are somewhat isolated. Um, we have found, um, others doing what we're doing. Um, some of them are veterans. Um, but I would say that, that it is, few and far between who are doing exactly what we're doing as far as regenerative agriculture, um, beyond organic type, uh, farming, uh, there, there isn't, there aren't too many that are doing it. Um, and, and so we're building a community and I feel like we do that with our, with our customers. Um, but we're definitely not there yet. And where we are in our area too, we're finding the same thing. I think Brittany and I were talking about how there's a few other dairy farms in our area. But when we moved in, we were asking them, you know, we want to find truly grass-fed um, cows that we're buying our dairy from. And we actually have um, one of our friends came to us 
because we, we couldn't find it ourselves. So we actually ended up um, starting our own micro dairy, never did dairy before. <laughs> and so now we have three cows that we um, kind of co-own with our, our friends. And um, a friend of ours, another friend that, that came and told us, you know, hey, did you, I mean, I've been buying milk from them and I just realized that they're using conventional grains during feeding and now I don't want to do that and I don't want to buy their milk anymore, but they're the the main dairy people to buy in our area. So, so you know, this all kind of started with, we couldn't find it ourselves and we kind of have to do it now. Well, well that sounds like a common theme. You, you guys are living off grid out of necessity because it mm-hmm. sounded like it costs more to bring in electricity, correct? Yeah. Once you start learning about your food system and, <laughs> and what other farms are doing, you mm-hmm. go, oh, well, if I can't find anybody that does it the way I want to do it, well, I guess I'm going to have to do it myself. Yeah. And that, that has been the theme of how we've expanded. The only poultry person in town, they use a conventional chicken. They do, it's, it might as well be a butterball, mm-hmm. but it's on pasture, right? So it's, oh, it's pastured chicken. Right. So we don't do those types of chickens because to us, they don't, they don't have any flavor. And why are we going to do a chicken that gets, you know, in six weeks, it's so big, it'll have a heart attack. So we do a heritage breed, which takes longer Mm -hmm. because that's what we want to eat. And then we find all these people that they also want to eat that way. So, you know, you go down this rabbit hole and then, you know, a farm later, (laughs) here you are. (laughs) But I want to speak to it is slightly isolating when you have a farm because you can't leave the farm Mm -hmm. unless you find someone who's extremely responsible. It's hard. It's hard to to just go, all right, we're going to do farm Mm -hmm. chores in the morning and then we leave for the day and we race back here for Mm -hmm. nighttime Mm -hmm. chores Mm -hmm. and the pigs are out and, you know, the electric fence has gone off and, you know, there's pandemonium. Yeah. So it, it can feel it can feel like you're suddenly very tied to your farm. I have a question because I didn't ask earlier on the tour and I'm curious, you're on an island. How did you get, how did you procure your animals to begin with? We actually bought all local animals. We started with the Cooney Coonies and we went to California and we imported those in. What? We imported Cooney Coonies in. Um, are you familiar with the Cooney Cooney? Yes, yes we but are, I didn't know they could, could fly animals uh, in. Yeah, well, well, yeah. When, when pigs fly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you can, we can import. Oh. Um, they have to stop and be inspected. Um, so there are some types of animals you cannot bring in. Um, there are certain breeds of ducks. There are certain types of geese. Uh, turkeys is one that is... you cannot it's very difficult to get turkeys in because west nile virus i believe is hmm. i mean are there local hatcheries here then there is there is one in oahu um but it's their varieties or their it's very limited limited yeah but yeah we bought all local um one of the things we tried to do is buy animals that were used to being in pasture so like with our pigs we went to someone who had lots of pigs, and they were just out. They had, I, I don't even think they even had a shelter. So we bought our first pigs from that woman um, to kind of just start the line. Right. Um, we now have a Berkshire boar. 
-hmm. He was also out in pasture. So we wanted to make sure that they were used to being kind of out in the wilderness. And I think that's kind of the point of being self-sustainable, where you kind of are forced to it because now with the limited options in the hatchery or now not, not being able to import other animals you want to be able to pick the best breeds that work for you and the CSA yeah. and just keep the cycle going. Yeah. Um, how do you decide um, how to cull and which ones you want to keep? <laughs> oh, we have, sometimes we have our favorites when they're re- like the pigs are, can be difficult because you just find one that's really, really sweet. And you're like, oh, okay, well, we'll breed her. We just had to call two of our older sows um, because they weren't getting pregnant anymore. And that was really hard mm-hmm. because we were very, very attached yeah. to Betty and Becky. <laughs> but And actually, I think that was uh, PCOS. So I think they actually were mm-hmm. starting to experience human-related uh, illness wow. from too much too much feed, so we've actually changed our our feeding structure to feeding once a day for any of the breeding pigs. So that's almost like an intermittent fasting. Like what what I would have a diabetic do right now mm. is stop eating so many meals, eat eat one large meal per day or and maybe a small one, um, but just shorten that that eating window. Um, and, and I believe that that will fix our, our problem. Can you tell me more about the supplementation that you would use for your pig? What are you feeding them? Um, most of them are grass-fed, but I know that there are some animals like the chickens and the pigs that need a little bit more um, supplement. So we, we do, um, we've got a local goat dairy here, um, and, and so we do buckets of whey. Uh, so we'll probably get four to six buckets of whey uh, every four days, and then I'll mix that with with some some regular feed, um, and then uh, giving them coconuts, bananas, um, banana stalks actually. Like so, the tree trunk of the banana, which bananas are like a grass, you cut them off, and they just grow new from the corum at the base. So they'll take that huge round tree trunk and they'll eat the entire thing Um, so it fills them up um, similar to what they do with the grass the guinea grass um, which grows six inches in a day um, in in this time of year Uh, they'll chew up and and take all the nutrients out of it and it'll turn into almost like this clot of of straw it looks like tan straw where they've just taken all the nutrients out of it and then they just spit it out (laughs) Wow. wow. And can you take that and put it back in the garden or compost well, it? Just, we just, it just, just stays just in the, yeah. Yeah. Into the soil. Once yeah. they rotate out of that spot, it just kind of breaks down. I, mean, I don't know if we just if we talked about it, but the differences in growing on an island, are there certain produce that do better out here? And also, what kind of predators do you experience out here? As far as vegetables, um, a lot of the Asian vegetables do really well. Tropical uh, vegetables. Uh, things that like heat. Now, our island, we have almost every single climate available to us. We have elevation, different elevations. Mm. So you can grow strawberries, you can grow stone fruits at higher elevations. Mm. So we have a lot of microclimates. For where we are, Asian vegetables do very, very well. Um, Some Mediterranean-style vegetables do well. Um, But it's always trial and error and different things grow love the different seasons the um something that's very interesting that 
little nuance, didn't realize this, you can find online sunrise and sunset, right? You can find out what time that is. Right, right. So you know how, how long your tomatoes will have sunlight. Ah, but we have a volcano. So on this side of the island, our sunset is a totally different time. We're, we're an, about an hour and a half earlier than the other side of the island because our volcano that separates, mm-hmm. um, we call it Hilo side and Kona side, is so tall, tall. Yeah. Oh. that we actually have a shorter day. Even on the longest day, we still have a shorter day. That's amazing. So when trying to do heirloom tomatoes, <laughs> I had to adjust for the amount of time because, yeah, our oh, day is actually short. I had um, no idea. On the drive here, we were talking about, oh, we should catch the sunset before we fly back what to Oahu. And we're like, okay, so <laughs> they're on the east side. So actually, we won't technically see like a proper sunset. Not over now, the water. Not, of the, not <laughs> over the water. But I said, probably a mountain, but probably a volcano. Well, now. <laughs> why don't you talk a little bit about the pest management? Oh, yeah. The pet. Yeah, because your growing season, right? Yeah, so our growing season is year-round. And you're zone 10. Yeah, I think it's zone 10. Well, 9 plus. Um, but, again, with the microclimates, there is some wiggle room as far as zoning. Being on an island, and also a tropical island, means we have no proper winter. So we have no snow cover. The pest pressures are continuous. There is no die-off for parasites, so parasite loads for our animals can be very high, which Mm. is why rotational grazing, we don't have to use chemical dewormers on our animals because we're breaking that parasite um, life cycle. Not saying that sometimes they do get parasites. We happen to use a natural dewormer, um, and we can kind of tell right before the rain comes, we want to give them a little extra um, preventative nutrients and things to really help bolster their immune system. Now, because we butcher, we can tell just mm-hmm. how healthy our animals are. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's been really incredible. Our, the liver is one of the big tests. Yeah, yeah I heard and the color of the liver, right? Is gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Absolutely <laughs> gorgeous. Um, so we use, we, we're able to use our livers and our hearts. There's no parasites. So... We're, we're doing something right, but it, you always have to pay attention to parasites and pests. Pest pressure is just intense. Um, the natural dewormer that you, you use? I use Molly's Herbals at Fiasco Farms, and it's black walnut. There's some fennel. There's um, some wormwood in the number one, which is the one you give to them for the first, you give them three days in a row. It's just a powder, um, and you put it in... in um, banana. Yeah, something like that. And and then you do a weekly one uh, that doesn't have the wormwood. And then when they're pregnant, you don't do the, the wormwood one um, because I think it's an abortificant or something like that. Um, but, yeah, it works really well. And you just order that online or are mm-hmm. they local? Online, yep. And we use it for all of the animals, including the dogs. Okay. And I also saw outside you have a bag of, you know, your organic feed probably for supplements. Where, where do you ship that from the main island? Or does that, is there a local feed store that sources organic? We used to ship it in from Modesto Mills. Uh, we, That's yeah. what we used to use. Yeah, yeah we, we used, used to Modesto ship it Mills, in. Yeah. But 
their bags are paper. Yeah, they are. They disintegrate. And, so, and it would mold. The yeah. feed would actually mold before we could feed it to the animals. Right. And so it's just too humid here. Mm. So you can't buy, can you buy one, like a ton of feed for your chicken or anything? No, we have to buy it in bags. And we, we have a tractor supply. We have some feed okay. stores. But um, it is, yeah, you have to work with what you can, can find. Um, and if a shipment doesn't come in, <laughs> you've got to mm-hmm. figure out what you're going to do. Yeah, where we are, we have a, um, an Amish place that we can order a kind of our organic feed, but by the ton. Oh, that's amazing. So it's, it's great cost savings. And we were what, talking about predators, too, because I noticed you have high-tensile electric fencing. You use Premier One chicken or poultry netting. What are you protecting against? Uh, so mongoose is, is probably the, the biggest predator that, that we deal with, and that's going to be for, for chickens. Um, not so much the rabbits because they're up high in, in hutches. Uh, rabbits can't touch the ground in Hawaii. They have to be uh, elevated above the ground to, to keep them from setting up a new colony of, of rabbits on the island because everything does so well here. Um, we do have hawks um, and owls. Uh, we've never had any any issues with with them. There's enough rats and other things that that they eat. Um, we have no snakes. Um, sometimes a, a wild dog. Um, so one of the reasons we have the high tensile strength electric fences is to keep a wild dog out, um, keep thieves uh, from from coming onto the farm, and then also to keep all of our animals here. Um, and and uh, the electric fence does a really great job of that. Um, besides that, no, no real other uh, things coming after our, our animals, thank goodness. <laughs> what is your best-selling product here at the CSA? Mm, that's a tough one. I think I know what it is. What is it? Because it's new. What is it? Oh, uh, the, primal the Primal ground. ground. Our Primal Ground is, it is absolutely our most requested um, I, we, we had to increase how much we make. Each month we do 100. We were doing 100 pounds of primal ground, and now we're up to 150. I'll let you in on my secret. <laughs> it is an 80-10-10 blend of so regular ground beef. Mm-hmm. 10% uh, is going to be heart, and 10% is liver. And we, ate, mm-hmm. we dry the liver, so a couple days it hangs, and so it's not slimy. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was just making the mixture so wet. And now it's just, it is fantastic. You're, you can't necessarily really taste the liver. You don't know what's really in there. You, you, it's a little bit earthy. There's, there's just something. You can't quite put your finger on it. I get full quicker. So that's how I know that oh. it's so nutrient dense oh. that I don't need to eat as much. Oh. Aside from making it ourselves, we'd have to get it from Force of Nature yeah. Meats, and I think they also said that's one of their top performing sales too. But or we would, have, or we'd have to sprinkle pluck to somehow get our offals in. But yeah, that's that's awesome. Well, that's it, incredible. It started out; it was a total fluke. We had one of our <laughs> members who got pregnant, and she um, she was um, iron deficient, and she asked me, you know, I. I know I'm supposed to eat liver, but I don't want to. I don't like it. Mm-hmm. Can you just mix it into my ground? 
Well, sure. So I tried it. And, uh, and then I think we ate some of it. And we're like, oh, this is pretty good. And then I had someone else that said, hey, you know, I know I should be eating my liver. And all mm-hmm. of a sudden, I had all these people telling yeah. me, I was like, do you all go to the same naturopath or something? What? Did someone do a show on it's liver? On, it's on TikTok. It's on, yeah, right? <laughs> exactly. And, um, and so we started making more and more and more. And it, it just... I mean, I can't, I can't make enough. It was just one of those things you're like, you know, this liver thing, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't believe so many people were wanting liver. <laughs> I'm really excited. I hope that one day we can, we'll have to talk about bringing some of your meat home for our family to try because you were telling me that you were feeding papaya <laughs> and was it pineapples or, or to your pigs and your animals? And I'm like, that just takes it to another level. And we take it to another level, even above that, because we we're now aging our pork. So we were we at twenty we're at twenty days. Mm-hmm. We do a twenty day dry age on our pork, and it takes on this. It's it's this really delicious porkiness. It's not a off putting pork taste, but if you go to a grocery store or even a restaurant and you get pork. It's it's almost flavorless, mm-hmm. and with ours, it's it's this. I don't it, nutty. It, yeah, nuttiness. It's it's really wild. I cannot eat pork anywhere anymore, and it's hard. Actually, we've we've talked about in in past episodes how, you know, we're we're foodies. We're from California, and we loved going down to SoCal for our Asian food. But over time, in the last couple of years, nothing tastes good anymore. And I think it's because of the way that we live, the, the quality of meat and the quality of food that we are growing literally on our own land or we're supporting our local farmers. Um, when we first moved to um, you know, Tennessee and where we're at, we supported farmers like ourselves. But you know, are, are you seeing, are you finding that? You have great restaurants here on the island. Are you finding that sometimes your home cooked meal with just salt and pepper beats all of that? That's Bodie. Bodie's favorite. We go out to a restaurant, and he orders something, and he starts eating, and it goes, ah, you'd make this better at home. <laughs> well, why did we even go out here? But, yeah, and it's like 50, $52 uh, for the plate, and you're like, yeah. And we just did it the other night, and you said, is this, is this beef? I think this is <laughs> pork. I got a It steak. has no flavor. I, I thought it was pork. I thought they brought me a, like a oh. boneless Flameless. pork chop. Because the beef, it just, it didn't have any flavor. It was yeah. so strange. Well, yeah. We went to, on the flight here, he had a loco moco in the airport, and I just stared at it, and I'm like, is that, is that ground beef? Like, does that taste good to How you? How about the egg? And you're like, this yolk, it's like, I know. what? What is this sauce? <laughs> well, how do people um, who are interested in buying your meat can what's the best way that they can sign up do you have a wait list well right now yeah we do have a wait list because we're in the middle of our csas at the time at this time so um monthly we do our our beef boxes um our csa is now three months long so it gives people a nice cycle through where we do three months on one month off it gives us a little reset it's usually our busiest month but um 
it just, it helps us pace things a little bit better. And then three months on, one month off. So right now we're getting ready to do our second installment for our CSA. Uh, but sugarhillfarmstead.com is our website. And follow us on Instagram at sugarhillfarmstead.com. And, uh, you know, tag us on some of your cool food that you're making. Cause I, I'm a foodie. I love cooking. I, and I don't care if you use my meat or not. I want to see what people are eating. I yeah. love it. <laughs> and that's, I think one of the things that ties us together too, is that you also have a cookbook that you put together. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So I am still finding out that clients that we've had for years, they are recovering vegans. And I mean, I went through a vegetarian phase myself. My mother loves reminding me of my vegetarian phase. Brittany, do you remember you wouldn't eat a hamburger? Um, so I found that we had clients that kept our meat in the freezer and they weren't eating it because they wanted to honor that animal. They wanted to honor that meat, but they couldn't figure out. They didn't want to mess it up and they were just so scared. So. I decided to create a cooking guide and it's just a basic recipe for how do you braise something? How do you roast a chicken? How do you cook a steak? Because once you get that basic part down, just cooking the meat, then you have the confidence to, to add and do, do a few little cool things with it. But being able to, to eat that meat, you've made that first step to buying really healthy responsibly raised humanely handled meat like let's let's get it in your body now your cookbook is so simple to read to understand it really makes it so that anybody can get started in, in cooking and the nice thing about the way that we're raising our meat the way that you're doing it as well really do we need much more seasoning other than salt and pepper oh yeah no i you know you add a little sauce just to highlight the flavor of the meat. Don't bury it in too much rub or, or you know, do too much to it. We had um, one of Bodie's coworkers come and, and visit us, and I cooked them a pork chop. I thought it'd be so cool. Just a little salt and pepper. Her husband, he ate it, and he said, what did you do to this pork chop? It's amazing. <laughs> this is perfect. And I'm like, it's salt and pepper and a cast iron skillet. I, uh, <laughs> and my dad will say, Wendy, to my mother, Wendy, why don't you cook like this at home? <laughs> you know, they're like, well, how come we don't eat like this at home? <laughs> and it's just, it's such a great testament to yes. the flavor of the meat. Yes. And, you know, we're not pumping it full of chemicals and we're not doing anything really. We're not we're feeding them the biologically appropriate diet that they should be eating. And I mean, that's just salt and pepper is all you need. Once you've got all that, <laughs> the, the foundation of that great taste. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing that because I mean, I found that in my cooking too. It doesn't really, it's not that complicated. We don't really need all these cooking shows and we don't need all these books. Really. If you start at the in quality of the ingredients and if you source it right, you raise it right, you know, um, you know, either you're doing it or you're supporting your local farmer. Really, that's the key to eating really good food. Thank you so much, Bodie and Brittany. This has been such a treat. I mean, coming to Hawaii, a lot of people go to Hawaii and then they, they go shopping or they go sightseeing and they go out to restaurants. We wanted to come and tour your farm. Um, it's exciting because you're regenerative far fellow regenerative farmers and 
I love the kinship of Bodhi that you're a veteran too, and you guys are just doing the right thing and doing it out of necessity, it sounds like. And because of out of necessity, you are producing high quality food for your community. So thank you for that. Thanks. You're continuing to serve. And that's amazing. Uh, we've learned a lot here today and we love learning how other farms do it and in different climates and here you're doing it in paradise and we loved visiting and touring and just learning how you did it and we we learned a lot about how even you know with finances too you were able to write write up and get grants and that that it's in itself is very inspiring and motivating for other veterans and other you know soon to be homesteaders to get into it to start growing their own food yes and thank you to everyone who's listening in. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it out to your friends and hit the subscribe button below. And until next time, continue farming. Thanks, everyone.